You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and joining me once again, one of my favorite guests, Jan Semenov. Jan, it's been so long since we've like actually hung out. In person or even by Zoom? In Well, both, but I was thinking in person. Oh my God. Well, we were supposed to present at that conference together just before the pandemic struck. In Ohio, I, I went to that one. In Ohio, yeah. And then you got sick after that. Yeah. I was actually sick the week before. So I said, well, I better not go. I'm not feeling well. And yep. then everything got locked down. Halfway through the conference, you guys got shut down. We did, yeah. And before that, I think the last time I saw you was in San Diego? Probably. Yeah, it's almost two years. September 2019. And I don't think, are you, will you be in at the DUI DLA? seminar in Chicago in September? I am slated to actually present in in Chicago in September, but we will, of course, see about travel restrictions and see what happens. Got my second shot last week, so, or, yeah, 10 days ago, so we should be good. But here's an interesting thing. My first shot was AstraZeneca, which was not FDA approved in the United States. My second shot was Pfizer. So I have a hybrid mixture of, of between the two shots, now which is allowed that now that in Canada, right? They say that gives you a better level of protection. It, it, yes, actually, I did a lot of research, as you can imagine <laughs> that I would have. And in <laughs> fact, the, it's called the immunogenicity of the, of the virus protection is actually higher by about 5%. But the problem is that uh, AstraZeneca was not FDA approved. And so many US authorities are saying, you've only got one shot. So we'll be interested to see if uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau are able to hash something out to make allowances for the fact, I mean, the Americans gave us the AstraZeneca because they didn't want it. So we should be able to use it, right? Yes. I I also think, you know, I don't think there's been any indication from the U.S. that they're going to put a vaccine passport system in, at least as against Canadians. There might be organizations or like Broadway shows. (laughs) Well, I was just going to mention, I mean, you know, I I, I heard some some upset Canadians that they couldn't go to see the boss in New York on Broadway because they've only got AstraZeneca shots. So Anyway, well, we'll see what happens. They did change that, but I didn't take you ask you to come here to talk about vaccines <laughs> and how long it's been since we got to hang out. Um, I asked you to come on the podcast because I thought we could have a very interesting discussion first about smoking and breath testing. Right. So I was reading in our manual for our roadside breathalyzer device here in in BC, the Alcosensor FST, uh, that a five minute wait is required after a subject smokes because the presence Mm. of tobacco in the breath sample could damage the fuel cell. Right. Yeah, there, that's exactly right. And, and I think five minutes is not sufficient. I also think it's a watering down of the standards so that we can expedite the breath testing process a little bit. Um, 
I hate I hate to tell stories that make me walk uphill against the wind in the snowstorm both ways to school. But when I was a breath tech, it was a 15 minute wait for anything. Uh, actually, the the rule in, in uh, for breath testing entirely has always been um, 15 minutes from anything in your mouth before you're put on a breath machine, whether it's a roadside screening device or an evidentiary device. And there's a couple of reasons. The first reason, of course, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the FST, any fuel cell device can be really radically damaged by blowing contaminant into it. Um, you just, they don't recover from that because they absorb the contaminant and it ends up kind of nulling out the qualities of the fuel cell. Um, it's not as bad with devices that are passed through like, um, like an uh, Intoxilizer 5000 or a Data Master DMT or Intoxilizer 8000, but anything that's got a fuel cell will really become damaged by having contaminant put in it. More, more importantly, we can't control, as a breath tech, you can't control the variables that are in play. And it's always the variables that you are trying to control you know, this guy's diabetic, this guy's on a ketogenic diet, this guy's got COPD, uh, this guy is really big and can provide a 15 second breast sample, this person is very small and can only provide a four second breast sample. So we're trying to always control all the variables so that we minimize the potential for error. By only allowing five minutes of time between, you know, stubbing out your smoke to blowing into a breath device doesn't, I mean, it might protect the fuel cell, but it doesn't take into account the control of the variables. Right. And, and I, I was really surprised. Like you sent me, you sent me the stuff on the article um, from the BC about the five minute wait with cigarettes. And that kind of blew my mind to be honest with you, because I, I've been doing, I, I, I took my first breath testing course in 1986 <laughs> that's when I was born I was going to ask about that but I didn't <laughs> want to go there uh yeah I took my first breath testing course in 1986 and it was you know for for all of those decades it's been hey you don't you don't do anything and if you take a look too um at the at the procedures that have been set up by the manufacturers and about different um experts in the field like Dr. Kurt Dubowski or A.W. Jones they talk about these sorts of contaminants and the necessity for an appropriate deprivation and observation period. You're depriving a person from any mouth alcohol contamination or any contamination from anything else. Water, tobacco, a breath mint. You can't have a bignaca, which has alcohol in it. You can't, you know, you can't do all these sorts of things because it then introduces the variable, introduces the unknown. So well, and it, it would have been impossible, and it continues to be impossible to test every possible substance that could cause an interfering reason reading on the fuel cell. Like I know the the experiments very informal that I've done with our office, where we've, you know, on our YouTube channel tested very various things. We've gotten surprising results of things mm -hmm. that produce fail readings. Probably also really damaged the fuel cells on our devices oh, yeah. blowing whatever we just put in our mouths into them but yeah i i watched i watched the video you guys did about uh, uh soy sauce and i'm thinking good thing you're using your fuel cell device and not mine because 
<laughs> that would have pretty much pooched that one. Yeah. But it's, you know, okay, so I get these reasons from the Road Safety BC Tribunal on this smoking issue, where they say they seem to separate the issue from false fail on the one end of things, saying, well, there's, you know, known things that will cause a false fail, reading the introduction of alcohol into the breath sample from something other than the alcohol-laden air out of the, the deep lung air, and damage to the fuel cell which they say if there's damage to the fuel cell, that isn't known to produce unreliable readings. What do you say to something like that? Uh, that that's a ridiculous and spurious argument. I, I don't know. <laughs> this is, am I saying appropriately what I'm thinking or am I being too subtle with that? Um, <laughs> I had a, I had a, a, a prosecutor once I was in court and I was saying, listen, you know, there's certain things that need to be done in terms of maintenance and calibration and performance requirements on these devices. And if it's not done, if it's not done, it's, it's akin to not uh, uh, changing the oil in your car, uh, never uh, checking the air pressure in your tires uh, not adding, uh, you know, windshield washer fluid or adding, making sure you've got the appropriate radiator fluid when you're heading into a good Saskatchewan winter, you know, all these sorts of things will impact the, the, your car, your vehicle and the operation of it. And the prosecutors, oh yeah, but it's not like you're, you know, if it's 5,000 miles between oil changes and you go 5,001 that your car doesn't stop running, it doesn't start working. And I mean, no, but it, but its mileage will vary. And mm -hmm. that's the issue. And it, if you think about it in terms of your mileage will vary, then, then that's where you have to go with this because your accuracy will vary, your reliability will vary. All these sorts of things that contribute to those finite niceties that establish reliability are compromised. And so when you start eroding the breath testing process by by not doing the calibration or introducing a false uh, uh, substance or an unknown substance, you're introducing variability that reduces reliability. Mm -hmm. And I think that people need to separate those kind of des disparate motions in their, in their mind to say that, yeah, yeah, it doesn't stop working, but that number maybe doesn't have the degree of uh, efficacy or reliability that you really want, particularly if you're going to rely upon something beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, second one for you that I've seen in response to the smoking issue. I've had adjudicators say in, in criticizing my clients for raising the smoking that there is, uh, it's not likely that there would be any remnants from the cigarette smoke in a person's lungs after they've provided a sample because in the time period between when they put the cigarette out and when they blew they were breathing and so they would have just exhausted all of that you have some knowledge about lung emptying and filling mm -hmm. yeah is that scientifically valid yeah that probably is i i, I think that probably any kind of contaminant that's in the air lungs the, the, the lung itself is is long gone um but that's not the point the point is, is that uh, you still got stuff in the oral pathway. You've still got stuff in the mucus lining that has collected along the inside of the, of the trachea. Uh, so 
again, that contaminant, if it's fresh, is going to provide a false positive. And it would be interesting um, taking a look at the different types of tobacco products that are being used because, I mean, and I don't know, I guess we could give this a try. <laughs> Not that I want to buy them, but a pack of menthol smokes might give a different response than a package of, of um, you know, Demorier lights. It's been 30 years since I've smoked, so I, I don't <laughs> even know the brand names anymore. But I I mean, you've, got, you've got some that are really heavy with tar and nicotine, some that are really light that, you know, I mean, you're sucking on them and nothing comes in and it's kind of a disappointing cigarette. And then you've got things that are mixtures. Um, some are organic and some are got flavorants added to them. I don't even want to get into the notion of uh, my oldest son has decided that he doesn't want to smoke. So he's going to vape instead. And we need to have a four eyes conversation about the popcorn lungs and the lunacy of that. And I whack mm -hmm. him upside the head every time I see him doing it, but whatever. They, they use different flavorants and different chemicals to adulterate that. So I, I don't I, know if you've ever been in a, you stopped at a red light and you see a guy in the car in front of you and he, he takes a puff and the big puff cloud of smoke cloud <laughs> fills the vehicle. And I'm thinking, dude, number one, popcorn lung. I want you to remember that. And number two, think about the contamination that's occurring in the mouth and the oral pathway. And, 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 and keep in mind that your trachea is covered with mucus on the inside. So it's going to collect all those particles. And we don't know what the effect is for that. And so the simple remedy is nothing by mouth for 15 minutes. Hello. Well, I've, also, I've also seen in lots of my clients um, cases, they're vaping and they send me the ingredients in the vape and it's got ethanol. Well, yep. that's alcohol that needs 15 minutes or it's got propylene glycol. Mm -hmm. That's an alcohol. <laughs> like, yeah, propylene glycol is also an alcohol. We also call it anti antifreeze solution. Good thing to ingest into your body, huh? Yeah, gross. <laughs> but also think about it in terms of, again, minimizing the variables. And that's, that's where it is. I mean, um, I, I was an emergency medical technician. I worked ambulance for four years before I was a cop. And we always talk about um, a, a Latin term that may, many of your readers would understand or your viewers will understand, non parorum, nothing by mouth. Right. So if you go into the hospital and you see a person who's got NPO over top of their hospital bed, that means they can't have water, they can't have juice, they can't have breakfast because they're in surgery. So NPO, non-parorum. And that's the huh. rule that really we need to adopt, readopt, readopt for breath testing because it was always the case that you didn't do a test for 15 minutes. But again, like I say, I think what they're doing is they're, um, they're uh, minimizing some of the control variables because no one challenges on it. And they're saying, well, the technology is so much better. You know, we've got slope detectors that determine if there's mouth alcohol, yada, yada, yada. And, and, you know, what I see with a lot of those BC IRP files is that they are, they're getting cranked out, man. They're, well, they get, they get an minutes from Five minutes from stop to, to, taxi yeah well they get an award the more they give so it's an incentive to do it quick do it fast do it dirty and that's unfortunate that is speaking of rcmp doing things 
quick, fast, and dirty. Uh, right. You and I were recently featured in a Toronto Star exclusive story about uh, the problem in Canada um, of RCMP officers using expired blood kits for right. blood testing. Thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously, I think it's horrifying that they're doing this and i'm i'm incredibly frustrated that they're not putting the resources into ensuring that the officers are equipped with non-expired kits tracking who has what kits when they expire like can't you create an excel spreadsheet these are all the kits these are when they expire these are whose duty bags they're in these (laughs) need to be replaced create a program that automatically texts that officer and says time to refresh your blood kit okay so back to uphill both directions against the wind and the snowstorm. Um, Back in the day when I was originally trained in 1990 as an evidentiary qualified technician on the old breathalyzer 900A, we had an afternoon of blood draws. And the reason that we, they trained the breathalyzer technicians to know more about blood draws than the average cop was because we became resource personnel if there was an accident with injuries and the victims or the suspect was taken off to the hospital, then we would arrive at the, the qualified technician would arrive at the hospital with a blood kit. And um, I would give instructions and I did this numerous times. I would give instructions to the nurse. Okay. We've got a, a telewarrant here. We've made a demand. We're, we're going to collect a sample of blood. And there was a sheet in there um, that gave us step-by-step instructions and also first huh they still have that sheet i'm sure they do but i think (laughs) if you took a look at that sheet i think on the very top of the sheet is ensure ensure uh uh blood collection kit is within date and um there's there's a couple of issues with with using an old um an old tube an old uh vacutainer and it may not be that there's contaminant. It could be that there's less of a vacuum in the tube. Okay, understand that a vacutainer, when you're, when you're inserting it, then the needle goes in the arm and then the, the vacutainer goes into the needle. There's a vacuum inside that little container. It holds about five milliliters of blood, five to seven milliliters that get drawn by the vacuum of the container itself into the container. Okay. Yeah. Um, the reason that there's an expiry date on the tube is not because there it, it can it can grow microbes, but it may not pull in the full breaths or the blood sample that you actually need. Right. So, you have to collect a minimum volume of blood. Right. And if the vacutainer is expired, it may not have the vacuum that that pulls in that minimum volume of blood. Um, the other thing is is the potassium oxalate is pretty stable. I mean, that, 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 that uh, chemical is not going to expire. Um, but the potassium oxalate, if it doesn't mix in the right volume of blood, then it creates issues when you're doing the, the gas chromatography analysis later on down the road. So it's really important that you get the right mixture of potassium oxalate and blood in that vacutainer that the thing is gently inverted seven to ten times to mix them properly and there's the problem with the expired tube it's so it's not so much it's going to ferment or cause any kind of other issues it's just that it's not going to not going to mix properly 
what I thought was really also shocking about the story was that the public health agency of BC was advising RCMP officers, oh no, it's totally fine to use expired tubes when their advice to nurses and and doctors and lab techs in the hospital is don't use them if they're expired. Well, I hate to I hate to take credit for another person's work, but when the when the reporter talked to me, I said, why don't you get in touch with the hospital phlebotomists and find out what their position is on expired tubes? Am I allowed to use an expired tube to, you know, uh, check for venereal disease? Am I allowed to use an expired <laughs> tube to ch check for whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so if you can't use an expired tube for A, B, and C, you shouldn't be able to use it for D. No, and especially not, I think, honestly, I think that in a setting where you are charging somebody, and remember the blood is ordinarily only connect, connect, collected in Canada in cases where there's a serious accident, right. because the person has to be incapable of providing a breath sample or it would be impracticable to obtain a breath sample. Mm -hmm. Usually that's an accident situation. So oftentimes they're facing the potential of a bodily harm or a death charge, very serious charges right. for which the presumption is that they would get jail if convicted. To go from that to, to say, well, we can have a lower forensic standard for this than we would have in the hospital. We were quickly drawing your blood to check what your ferritin levels were to see if your symptoms that you presented with at the ER are consistent with iron deficiency or right. you know, to quickly determine whether you're in ketosis to see why you're having kidney problems. Like, I mean, these are things that, you know, in a cl clinical setting, the blood draw at the hospital is gonna tell you a little bit of information real quickly that helps you make decisions about the course of treatment that you confirm through doing the treatment, through interviewing the patient and getting their history. The blood sample is the evidence in an over 80 charge, that it is the evidence. You get the blood, you get the reading, that's the case. Right. So it's, it's, to me, it's so much more significant than doing it in a clinical setting. And yet the standards that we're letting the police get away with are so much lower. Well, you know, this has been my concern for the last number of years is that we see a lowering of standards for expediency's sake yeah. overall. And I, that, and it, it, it starts with little things, Kyla. Um, when I was, when I was a traffic cop running radar, I had to have calibrated tuning forks to test my radar to make sure that my radar and you know you whack the tuning fork against the soft dash and hold it in front of the radar gun it beep beep beeps and it says okay 100 kilometers an hour and it's a 100 kilometer an hour tuning fork and that means it's a calibration verification check right just like with a breath instrument I, I see now that in many jurisdictions across North America they're just getting rid of the tuning forks at all so there's no external verification being done. And so it starts with little things like that, that nobody seems to care about. And next thing you know, you know, we've got units that are, COVID I think has been interesting because I'm getting more and more reports of um, the calibration and the maintenance of breath alcohol devices just being shut down during the pandemic. And in, unless there is some kind of pressure on the police and the forensic agencies to resume that sort of testing, maintenance and calibration in certain jurisdictions, it will just not happen again. I think Texas is gonna go that direction. 
it worked just fine during the pandemic so no reason we need to to bring it back the regular calibration checks and i and i hate to say it but that's why you need a strong defense bar to say but wait this is necessary and there's a reason it's necessary so well from what i know of the lawyers in texas there is a strong strong defense bar you and i you and i both know a couple that are gonna gonna be gonna be pushing that issue um hey so i was reading an article that just came out by aw jones um in 2020 and uh, he's talking about different uh, effects of alcohol. And I had never thought about it before, back to the, the blood collection samples. I, I'm trying to find it in the PDF in front of me right now. I won't be able to do it. I should have done it beforehand. But um, he was talking about the, the notion of collecting the forensic blood sample into the collection vacutainer. And then he writes down that these, and I, I never thought about this. this is, you're going you're gonna to think this is kind of cool. But these tests when the vacutainers were also always done using a glass tube that was this right. particular grade of glass tube. And now, because of, you know, costs and everything like that, they're using plastic tubes for the vacutainers. Well, I wonder so, what impact that has on the sample. Yeah, and he raises the issue that I wonder what kind of impact that will have on the sample and leaves it as a pregnant pause open for interpretation. But obviously, it hasn't been hasn't been studied. Well, Wayne Jones, if you're listening, come get me drunk, take my blood. <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> I would love to be like have my claim to fame being a uh, a test subject in a Wayne Jones study. Yeah, no kidding. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. Well, he's, still in, he's still in touch with me over counterpoint articles every once in a while. So it's kind of nice to know that he's reading them and, 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 and paying attention. You're he saying also, you're going to make this happen. What's that, sorry? <laughs> you're saying you're going to make this happen. When the pandemic's over, we'll fly him in, we'll all party, we'll drink, we'll draw blood. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I, I think what would be interesting, he has a 450 or 500 articles under his belt and a 40 plus year uh, history or 50 plus year history of doing this kind of stuff. Nobody has ever really interviewed him and sat down with him to do a book or a podcast. He was really interested in doing stuff on Eric Widmark. He actually sent me a monograph that he wrote about Eric Widmark, Dr. Widmark. Um, and I think that, you know, turnaround is fair play. I think somebody should really do some kind of examination of the of his body of work because I think it's quite considerable. Wow. wow. Maybe I should go to Sweden. Yes. <laughs> well, Jan, thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule of being awesome and also being in Saskatchewan. How those two things can happen together, I don't know. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, and for joining me on the Driving Law podcast. If anybody needs to consult you for your expertise, how can they reach you? Um, go to counterpointjournal.com, which is counterpoint-journal.com. And there's a number of links. You can send me some an email there. Uh, it's yawn at counterpoint-journal.com. Or you can give me a call on my toll-free number in North America, which is 1-888-470-6620.
And if you didn't catch that or you're shy, you can give me a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and we'll put you in touch with Jan. And also subscribe to CounterPoint. Very important information if you're interested in all of this stuff. We are starting volume six in the fall. It's now time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Okay, and this one is great. I love, like, every aspect of this story. So, first, a man steals a pickup truck in Red Deer. Perfectly good pickup truck. He's even got it loaded with gas canisters. I see no reason why this individual would need to steal another pickup truck, but he did. And not only did he steal this other pickup truck, he did it in the most epic fashion ever. So what happens is uh, after he steals the truck in Red Deer, he drives to Rocky Mountain House. And in Rocky Mountain House, he goes to a, a truck dealership. And he very gently uses the first stolen truck to kind of like eventually ram open the doors to the dealership not like smashing through them or anything like that like just very gently bumping up against them until they come open you know a respectful way to break into a dealership using a stolen pickup truck from there uh he gets out of the truck he goes inside he goes to the front desk and he starts rummaging around inside until he finds himself a set of truck keys and he does not go back outside to the lot and figure out which truck the keys relate to. Oh no, the keys are to a truck that is inside the dealership. You know, one of those showroom trucks. So he gets in that truck, turns it on and smashes it through the exit doors of the dealership. No more gentle uh, ramming down of the door, just fully smashes through the exit. They estimate that it is about $50,000 worth of damage to the dealership. He then parks the truck upon exiting and loads the truck up with stolen gas canisters from the first stolen pickup truck before then leaving causing all this damage and chaos. I just think it's amazing, like, going from one stolen truck to another, uh, transferring the gas canisters, which seems to be a ridiculous waste of time, having a perfectly good stolen truck to begin with, and going to such an elaborate method of stealing another truck, and, and not just any truck, but the showroom truck. Like, to me, this is just absolutely hilarious. So uh, you can find it. If you Google it, you can find it. Um, there is some security footage. It is worth watching. It is worth the laugh. And that's our podcast. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.